us. So today's series of questions is going to be a lot less personal than last week, right? Last week was really personal. When you get into relationships, it becomes very personal. And I just want to throw this out there for those of you that were here last week or you watched online and you've got questions about it. Um, we had some people coming up to me later after the message and they were saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm got this divorce situation and, and what do I do? And somebody asked me, they said, you know, if, if we're divorced and remarried, do we need to get divorced again? I was like, no, we don't, two wrongs don't make a right. Like, don't just keep divorcing to, to make it all work. Um, there's some, there's some grace involved in there too, that, that we've got to understand. But in a lot of, in a lot of the questions that we answer, you also have to understand the, the idea, the context behind what God's trying to say. Um, I, I mean, if you've ever done Dave Ramsey's FPU, uh, Financial Peace University, one of the things Dave Ramsey says is cut up all your credit cards. Like, absolutely cut up every credit card. Don't use a credit card. Credit cards are of the devil. Um, why does he say that? Does he say that because credit cards are absolutely bad and no one should ever use them? No. He's saying that because most people don't know how to deal with it, right? Most people get themselves in trouble with a credit card. And so for the, mo- for the vast majority of people, you've got to have that understanding. So sometimes there are things in the scriptures that are very extreme, but it's because we need to have a good understanding of the purpose behind what we're saying. So today's going to be a lot easier uh, topic to talk about. Today we're talking about the book of Revelation, right? How many of you came in this morning saying, I hope they talk about Revelation? Anybody? Nobody? Okay, Doobie, you're the only one right on, so we're here for you today. Um, We're going to be talking about the rapture of the church. We're going to be talking about Satan. Um, We're going to be talking about hell. And so uh, this is going to be fun. Yay. Yes. You should leave here today very happy. Like, just really, all the things we talk about are such joyous things. Um, To get started today, we've got to go in and get started. We don't have a lot of time for intros uh, but to get started today, we are going to talk about the book of Revelation. Uh, I would really like to do um, a series on the book of Revelation. I've never, I, I haven't done a full series on the book of Revelation. I've done a series before on end times, but not necessarily just on the book itself. Um, and so maybe, maybe I'll do that. I'm, I'm thinking about it. So today I'm going to kind of give you a little synopsis of, of Revelation and the views. So, so the question that was actually asked to me, the question was, is the book of Revelation symbolic um, or is it literal? How do we interpret, how do we understand the book of the Revelation? Well, first of all, you need to understand one thing. The book of Revelation is uh, literally called the Revelation of Christ. The whole book is about Jesus. At the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. So if you're saying, oh, it's too scary for me. I watched the Left Behind movie. I don't want to watch, I don't want to read it. No. The whole book is about Jesus. You can read it. You should read it. Every one of us should read the book. Um, the book of Revelation is all about him. But there are some areas of this book that sometimes Christians differ on. And so today I'm going to give you a very quick view, not in depth, very quick view of the different views that people have on the book of Revelation. But there are a couple of things that, that most people tend to agree on. Um, a lot of people are going to tend to agree on, and here's some terms that you're going to hear throughout this thing. Maybe not everybody agrees on these. Here's some terms. The rapture is a term you're going to hear a lot of, right? What does the rapture mean? The rapture, the word rapture um, is a Greek word that literally means to be caught up, right? So, so to catch something up. So the rapture of the church, depending on how you believe about it, the rapture of the church literally means that the church, the Christians, at some point, Christ is going to call us from the earth into heaven. So, so, um, so all of a sudden, everyone's going to be sitting here, and then the rapture happens. The Bible says in the, in the twinkling of an eye, like as fast as an eye can blink, and then people will disappear. They will go up into heaven, from, from living into, into heaven. Does that make sense? So that's what the rapture is. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. The tribulation is a word you're going to hear a lot of. The word tribulation um, has to do with a seven-year time period, a seven-year time period, where uh, the Antichrist is set, I know for some of you right off the bat, I've already lost you, like I'm already using words, you're like, what the heck is going on here? Um, we'll, we'll figure it out. Maybe we do need to do a series on this. Seven-year time period where the Antichrist rules um, the earth, it's a really bad, bad time. Most people break that time period up into three-and-a-half-year segments, two, three-and-a-half-year segments. Um, they say the first three-and-a-half years... The Antichrist makes a peace deal with Jerusalem, with Israel. And then in the second three and a half years, he breaks that peace deal. And they call it the Great Tribulation. Things get even worse. So things are bad. 
for three and a half years, and then they're worse for three and a half years. Um, then you hear the term, the, the thousand-year reign or the millennial reign. That, that just means it's a term for a thousand years where Christ um, is in charge. So you got seven years where, where the Antichrist or, or Satan is in charge. You've got seven years where Christ, I mean, a thousand years where Christ is in charge. Um, and then we'll hear terms like the judgment. Um, that's where God judges the living and the dead. The return of Christ when he shows back up. Okay? So now that we've got all that um, rattling around in our brains, let's talk about three different views uh, quickly. And then, and then we'll get into questions where all of these guys are going to be talking. But three different views on, um, on the end times. So you've got one view. It's called the amillennial view. A millennial view. Um, so a millennial view, basically the word A there, the letter A there means non. So, so it should be a not millennial view. They, people that have an a millennial view think that there is no thousand year reign of Christ. There is no actual time when Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years. That's a millennial view. Uh, most of the time, the, the a millennials have a mythological view of the book of Revelation. So in other words, when they look at the book of Revelation, none of it's true. None of it's literal. None of it's real. It's all like myths and stories that can help you in life. And that one day we will have a peaceful earth, but they don't know when that's going to happen. There's no signs to point to it. They just have a mythological view. These Most of the time, and, and I doubt anybody in here is a millennial, um, most of the time, an amillennial person, a belief system, they also view the Bible as a bunch of myths. So you're gonna, they would refer to, let's say, the story of creation or the story of Adam and Eve as the saga of Adam and Eve. In other words, it's a, it's a nice little story, but it's not real. So they have, a, they have a mythological view of the Bible, kind of like most Christians would have a mythological view, let's say, of, of Greek literature. When they're talking about Greek gods, it's, it's all mythology. That's how people would view the Bible if they've got an amillennial view. Um, most of the time we would say that amillennial views are not biblical. Most of the time we'd say it's not biblical because really scripture is going to bear out some of these other things we're going to talk about today. So amillennial view. If you want to know what that is, that's what that is. I gave you a very Cliff Notes version. Let's look at the two that are the most popular views. you got two more popular views. Um, one is the post-millennial view. Post-millennial view. Some of you may be post-millennial today and you don't even know it, right? You may be this way and you don't even know it. How many of you know what you are? Anybody know what you are? A-millennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial? Yeah, nobody knows. Awesome, awesome. Well, two of you know. All right. Do you even know what you are? No. No, Dad doesn't know what he is either. Um... Most, most really good Christians, a lot of people are going to hold their views on Revelation with an open hand, right? In other words, they're not so tight-fisted because it is futuristic. And so most people are going to hold it with an open hand because they understand that some of this stuff can change as, as we understand it. Post-millennial. Um, these people believe that Christ comes back. They believe in the return of Christ. But they believe he comes back after a thousand years. Now... If you believe that the thousand years is Christ ruling and reigning on earth, then you don't believe this, right? Because they believe that Christ doesn't come back until after the thousand years. So, so how does that work? Basically, they take chapter 19 and chapter 20 of the book of Revelation and flip-flop them. Don't know why you would do that, but they do that. And if you do that, that's okay. That's up to you. Um, so there's two different, there's two different post-millennial views. One is a spiritual post-millennial view. What they believe is they believe that Christ is ruling now, that we are living in the millennium. We're living in the thousand years. Now, a lot of times, their view on the thousand years is not necessarily as a round number. Um, they, they don't say it's, it is exactly a thousand years. It's just a time period. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a decent understanding of that. Um, but what they say is that Christ is ruling from heaven over earth. And some of you are like, yeah, but look at all the bad stuff happening. How is Christ allowing that to happen? Um, their view of Satan being bound... Um, is that he is bound, he's not banished. He's limited in power that Satan can't stop the church from growing, but yet he can affect everything else in the world. That's a spiritual view of the post-millennial view. And then the post-millennials also break off into another section called the political view. The political view, some of you might would know this one, um, that the church, it's not Christ ruling and reigning for a thousand years, it's the church ruling and reigning for a thousand years. And so a lot of people that have the political post-millennial view, if you're not confused yet, I am. Um, what they mean is, is they're saying that the church, they want the church to take over 
the world. So they, they expect Christians to rule and reign. They expect Christians to be in places of authority and power. Christian government set up, Christian hospitals, Christian schools. They, they expect Christianity to dominate the world. Um, and, and so you'll see some of this, uh, whether they hold hard and fast to it. And I'll, I'll give you an, a couple of examples. So, so one example would be um, Bethel. You, we sing a lot of Bethel songs. And you'll hear this a lot of times in Bethel's viewpoint. I'm not saying that Bethel overall is always post-millennial political view. But you'll hear some of the same concepts of, of um, kingdom, the kingdom of God coming now. Like we should be ruling and reigning now in the kingdom. So you'll hear those kind of thoughts. It's not that that view is bad at all. As a matter of fact, um, some people interpret it that way. And these are not necessarily bad things to say that Christians should be, should be striving to be in, in authority and be in, in political power. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, but then you've got the premillennial view. And this is probably more... Um, if you chop down my tree, this is where I'm going to fall. I'm not expecting anybody in here to say, well, I'm just going to do whatever Gabriel does. That's a terrible way to live your life, right? Um, you should always do what the Bible says. And if there's areas in here where it's a little bit gray in understanding, then that's okay. That's where we do our research and we, we try to find out what God's saying for us. So in the premillennial view, we view that Christ comes after, I mean, comes before the thousand years, that, that his return sets up a thousand years and that he rules and reigns literally on the earth. So whereas a, a post-millennial person, they're going to see a lot of symbolism. Um, so one's going to view it, a millennial is mythological, post-millennial a lot of times is symbolic, Premillennial, a lot of times, is they interpret Revelation very literally. They're looking for these things to happen in a literal sense. Um, and then within that, you've got different factions. Um, you've got people that are pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Anybody ever heard those terms? Who's heard the terms pre-trib? Okay, good, good, good. You don't have to understand them, but you need to, you need to at least have heard them. So uh, what they say is this. There's three different places where the rapture could happen. They're saying that it could happen at the beginning of the tribulation. So right from the beginning, the rapture happens. All the Christians go to heaven, and that starts the tribulation, the seven years. Some people believe like the seven years is going to start, and about halfway through at the three-and-a-half-year mark, then the rapture happens. The church goes to heaven. What would that be called? Mid-trib, yes, yes, it's not really hard to understand, right? And then some people believe we wait all the way through the end, like all Christians, we live through the whole tribulation, and then the rapture happens. That would be called post-trib thought, okay? So um, any of those thoughts, there's Bible for all three of them. There's places in the Bible where you could, you could say, okay, I, I really believe in pre-trib, I really believe in mid-trib, I really believe in post-trib. Whichever one of those thoughts you want to hold on to, you're more than welcome to. For me personally, I don't care. Um, as long as I go, right? As long as I'm not here. At some point, I want to be in heaven. Like, that's my goal. So whenever the train leaves, I just want to be on it. That's really my... If it leaves at the beginning, send me on. If it leaves in the middle, I'll get on. If it leaves at the end, that's going to stink for seven years. But it is what it is, right? So I just want to be on that train whenever it goes. Um, there used to be this song when, that they sang when I was a little kid called, This Train is Bound for Glory. Yeah, no, nobody knows that song. Okay. We probably should sing that next Sunday, wherever Jonathan is. Let's, let's come up with that song. Um, so let me just give you just a quick synopsis of, uh, of some of my thoughts, my thoughts on this. And from what I've studied, what I've researched, um, and, and where I'm going to view this, right? So I'm going to view this along the lines of there is going to be a rapture. I mean, there's going to be a rapture, but I believe there is going to be a seven-year, literal seven-year tribulation. Some people think it already happened. I think it's to come, okay? I think it's to come. Now, a couple of things. There's some signs. There's some signs that point to this that have yet to be revealed, like haven't happened yet. One of the things back in the day people thought that would never happen is Israel becoming a country. They never thought Israel would come back together. Multiple times in the Bible it prophesies about Israel coming back, the Jews coming back and forming their own country again, and people thought that would never happen. And then in 1948 it happened. So a lot of people feel like when, when 1948 happened, Israel became a country, that the end times clock started ticking, right? The countdown began. Um, there's a couple of things, though, that I feel like are holding us back from this time of tribulation. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that the temple um, will be rebuilt. Well, guess what? There's no temple in, in Jerusalem right now. The temple has yet to be rebuilt. And so, um, so I feel like, and this is my thought, I feel like 
until that temple gets rebuilt, that's the next step in the process, we can't have the tribulation start until that temple gets rebuilt. Now, here's a cool thing. There is a group in Israel right now, Jewish, that are um, trying to rebuild the temple. They are forming, they've got committees formed, they are starting the process of looking into rebuilding the temple. Now, how long will that take? I have no idea how long that would take. Um, But I just want you to know that the prophecies in the Bible are coming true or have come true. And so you can at least see, you know, you can at least see things moving in that direction. Now, whether it happens, whether the rapture happens pre, mid, or post, again, I'm not going to die on that hill. I I don't have any one of those. I would, if I'm going to say preference, I would prefer to go out first, right? Let's just go on and get this thing over with, get me out of here. That would be my preference. Um, But if it happens later, that's fine. After the tribulation happens, after those seven years, the Bible says that Christ will return. He's going to show up. His foot will touch down on the Mount of Olives, the book of Revelation says, in Jerusalem. When Christ comes back, there's going to be a war. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. And in that battle, Christ will defeat the, the armies of this world. He'll defeat them. He'll defeat the Antichrist and the Antichrist prophet. He'll defeat both of them. He'll defeat Satan in that moment. Now, here's the thing. That is not the final battle. The Bible says that he will defeat Satan. He will defeat the Antichrist. He'll defeat the prophet. He throws the Antichrist and the prophet into hell. But Satan, the Bible says, he just binds up. And saves him, right? Sticks him in a corner, puts him in a pit. And so then for a thousand years, Christ reigns on the earth in bodily form. Now, here's the cool thing about that. In that reigning, ruling and reigning, he is in charge. He's in charge. um, But there are still people that live through that tribulation that are not saved. They are not Christians at all. And they still have babies and they still, you know, reproduce. And so you've got a whole group of people. You've got Christians and you've got non-Christians um, living at the same time, but they're living under the rule of Christ. Now, you would think, and I would think, how in the world, how in the world could you not be a Christian and see Jesus come back from heaven? I have no idea. I, have no, I would think if you see someone come back, you're like, oh, okay, well, this is obviously it. Let's change our mind, right? But it doesn't happen that way. As a matter of fact, the Bible says after a thousand years, Satan is released from his prison, and he continues to deceive the nations, in one last gasp attempt to take over. At which point, and Bobby's going to touch on this later, at which point the Bible says that Christ opens his mouth and speaks a word and they all die. He doesn't even fight, doesn't even lift his finger, doesn't even throw one punch, no weapons, no nothing. Christ just speaks a word and done, right? Satan is destroyed. All those people that rebelled are destroyed, and, and we'll talk about that. And then the Bible says there's a final judgment and a new heaven and a new earth. So are we all caught up on Revelation? Everybody's answers, questions are answered, right? Right? Still a little confused? That's okay. I am too. Um, there's a lot to the book of Revelation, and I, I hated to, I needed to answer it because it was asked. But it's one of those things, again, this is a big, broad topic. So um, in some of my study, and one of the, I watched a video, one of the videos I watched just for this answer, um, I watched one that was like 45 minutes long. And I thought, eh, that's a lot of video to watch. I watched another guy teach on it, and it was like three hours long. So for me to take almost four hours worth of material and jam it into about ten minutes is very, very difficult. And you need to understand that. But if you have any questions about this after the service, you're more than welcome, welcome to text me or email me, and I'll send you all the information that I've gotten or the video links or whatever it is that you, if you want to watch it. Um, where it doesn't necessarily preach just one way. It's just an explanation of all the ways that people view this, okay? The second question we got asked is, why is Satan released after a thousand years? I just mentioned that. So let's see what the Bible says. In Revelation 20, 1 through 3, the Bible says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Verse 7, when the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations. Why in the world would God let him back out? You just captured the guy. He's been terrible since the beginning of time. Why in the world would you let him out? That's a great question. 
And uh, to be honest with you, the Bible's not very clear. Not very clear on this. Do you guys want to offer any of that, or do you want to wait for the next one? Because uh, I've got this answer, but I didn't know if you wanted to throw in something you and I talked about. Well, one of the things concerning the thousand years that, that we need to think about is the people that live through the tribulation, so they're not in glorified bodies, they've not been to heaven, have been caught away, so they're still in their physical bodies, right? So they're going to live through this. Then for a thousand years, just think about this a minute. There's no sickness and no death for a thousand years. That's a lot of reproduction because these people are going to go on with life. That's over 40 generations, at least that minimum, 40 generations of people. And what happens during that time is these people are born, and, and no offense to anyone in this room, including myself on this one, but sometimes we forget uh, what, what got us where we are. In other words, when you get 30 generations away from the beginning of the millennial reign, it doesn't make as much sense to you. And, and so the further they get away, these people still have open hearts. They're still able to receive or to hold back on something, be stubborn. So that's one of the reasons the devil is released. It would not be in God's interest for us to be able to say that we were tempted of the devil, but they weren't, and they made it without that. So there is something in the equity of God, and I don't understand it, I don't think for him, but there's something in his plan that he's going to release that enemy one more time because many of those people are not serving him, though he is ruling out of Jerusalem, and you've got a good thought on that. So my thought on this one is this, that whenever he releases Satan at the, at the end... For whatever time period that is, it may not be very long, but whenever he releases Satan, it's really to prove something to mankind. And it's really to take away all of our excuses. How many times have you thought, if I would have been one of the disciples, if I would have known Jesus personally, then I would live my life differently, right? We make this excuse. So there's going to be a lot of people that blame their sin and their problem on their environment. If my parents wouldn't have acted this way towards me, if I wouldn't have grown up in this city, if I wouldn't have lived in this time frame, if, if I wouldn't have had this environment growing up, that whole nature versus nurture, we blame sin. We blame sin. We excuse the problems that we have, and we blame everything else and everybody else. And what Jesus does here is he takes all of the excuses away by saying, now you're living in a time when I'm ruling and reigning, there is no satanic attack or temptation. And what he's proving is he's proving that at the end of the day, sin comes from our heart. We want to blame the devil. The devil made me do it. No, you made you do it. You made you do it. He may have introduced sin, but it's man's heart that's wicked. Right? Without Christ. Without Christ. We're wicked on the inside. And so what he does is he comes in and he says, sin has nothing to do with the economics. Sin has nothing to do with the government. Sin has nothing to do with your environment. Sin has nothing to do with, um, with your parents. Sin has everything to do with you and me. And so he takes away that excuse. And, and you see that people will still not serve him, even though he's in charge. It's amazing to me. Absolutely amazing. And so Satan is released for one final moment. And then God destroys it all, right? And then judges everyone and everything. Um, quickly, I already talked about the rapture. You've got a couple of verses on the rapture. Could you throw those out for us real quick before we move on to the next one? Yeah, one of the things about the book of Revelation, uh, a, a good thought on the book of Revelation is read it, A, but B, understand what you're doing with it. And, and here's what the Bible says, and it, it's so clear to me to get this, but in the New Living Translation, in Revelation 1-3, it says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listens to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. It doesn't say I have to understand it. It says I have to read it. And then if there are things in there that I need to obey, I need to be obedient to them. So there will be things I don't understand about Revelation I won't get. But I'm going to read it anyway. The other thing about Revelation, it's scattered through the New Testament. The rapture of the church doesn't just start there with John getting that prophecy. Paul talked about it. First, we won't read this, but 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul says that the Lord is going to come back. He's going to, don't worry about those that have died. He's going to bring them out of the grave, and he's going to take us to be with them. And then in Colossians 2, he says this. This is so cool. 
Paul says, talking about the feast. Y'all, y'all know that like the seven feasts and, and, uh, uh, that, the, that the Jews keep. And he says this about the feast. He said, for these rules and ceremonies were only shadows of the real thing, Christ. So here's what I want to give you as a church, as a thought on this about the rapture of the church. We throw away the feast and say, well, the feast, that's just about Israel. It's not about us. The Bible didn't say they were the feast of Israel. The Bible says they're the Lord's feast. They're the Lord's feast. In other words, they still work for us. And as a matter of fact, if you take the seven major feasts of the Lord and you look at them through Christ, listen to this, just quickly on this. They had seven feasts. There were, there were four of them in the spring. Passover, what happened on Passover? Jesus is crucified. Unleavened bread, what happened on the unleavened bread? He is buried. And then first fruits, that's the third part of that, th- those feasts. The, the third one was first fruits. What happened on first fruits? Jesus is resurrected. The next one is Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? Jesus sends back the Holy Spirit. All of these feasts have to do with Jesus and what he's doing. Now watch this. Then there's a, a, a time frame in there, the summer, where everything's growing and it comes to the harvest in the fall. And at that time, the next one that, that uh, comes up is the Feast of Trumpets. You know, the Bible says the Lord will come back and be a sound of a trumpet, a trumpet's blast. There's the Feast of Trumpets. Now, here's a cool thing about trumpets. If we believe in the rapture of the church and the trumpet blast and we're going to be called away, how that fits the feast in us is that is in the fall. That's at when they're taking in all the harvest. They're bringing it in. All of the workers in the field and a priest would go out on the temple steps with a trumpet and they would begin to blast the trumpets. When they did, every worker dropped their stuff. They quit right there and they started toward the temple. I don't know if that says anything to you, but we're all in the field right now. We're all working in the harvest. There'll come a time when we leave it just as it is. We do as much as we can do and we have to leave it. And another thing about that one, every other feast is on a full moon except trumpets and it's on a new moon. And, it, it, and that means it's dark. Isn't that interesting that the Bible says the Lord comes like a thief in the night and that feast is the one feast when it is dark. The other thing about the feast is it's also called Rosh Hashanah, but it's also a feast that they extended two days instead of one. They did it after the disbursement of the Jews when they got scattered all over the world. Then they made it, they call it the long day because they don't really know where the beginning and the end starts because it's at new moon and they extend the day so everybody in every time zone could have the celebration. So here's the thought on it. We don't know when the Lord is coming. We don't get that. But the blast of the trumpet will sound. We will be caught away. And it, it coincides with the feast of the Lord that he's given us. The next feast is Yom Kippur. That's atonement. And that would be the Lord when he uh, comes back. And then the tabernacles is the last one. That'd be the thousand year reign when God tabernacles or lives with these people. So I'm just saying that you tie everything into even the feast and the rapture the church is giving for us. And like Gabriel said, I just want to be in the first load. I mean, if it's pre-trib, great, mid-trib, great, post-trib, I don't care. I just want to go when, when the trumpet sounds. And it is attached. It's not just New Testament. It's Old Testament and New Testament. So that's my take on the rapture yeah. of the church. So, Yeah, I think for me, so years ago, I'm grilling out, and we're on the back porch, and I'm grilling out. we got some friends over, and a buddy of mine is sitting back there, and he's really big in the whole Revelation thing. And so as I'm grilling burgers and hot dogs, and we're doing all our thing, and, and it just out of the blue, like we're talking Auburn football and Alabama football and all this other stuff, and he pops off, and he goes, you know, you know are you a pre-trip, a mid-trip, or a post-trip guy? And, like, after I knock a hot dog on the floor, you know, I'm going, what do we do? I finally thought about it for a second, spun around. I was like, I genuinely don't care. I'd like to go first, but I'm going to make the trip. And, and what, it, what struck me about that is he absolutely could have cared less what my response was. Did not care what my opinion was. He was looking to justify a belief that he had and really, in a sense, pick a fight. And I think what we've got to be careful with Revelation, and just to back up to the whole thing, is the Bible is, a, the Bible is an incredibly black and white book. Number one, we gray the Bible up to make ourselves feel better, and it gives us wiggle red. Come on. But there are spots in the Bible that are gray. Jesus says the Father is the only one that knows the time and the place. He's the only one that knows that. But yet we beat the book of Revelation to death, and oftentimes we ask questions about Revelation, not because we want to learn as much, but we want to justify our own opinion, or we want to attack somebody else's. So as you're digging into this book, which I love that Pastor Gabriel wants to do a series on to do this study, I want to challenge everybody to really look at your heart and why you're digging into this book, too, number one. 
If it's because you've got something already on your heart that you want to justify, or it's because you want to go argue with somebody else about it, because this is the most argued book in the Bible. But then we have to check that and know why we're coming into it. One of the best studies I ever did on Revelation, and this was a 13-week study on this one book of the Bible. And the first week we walked in and the pastor who was leading it was holding up the entire book of the Bible, which I really meant to bring and do this. And he's got Revelation peached in between his fingers. And he says, if you haven't read all this, the rest of the Bible dangling, dangling below it, then you don't need to be here. And his, and his point was Revelation pulls from the book of Daniel. It pulls literally like Pastor Mike was saying. You can see the story of Revelation all throughout the entire Bible, but it uses a lot of liturgy and symbolism and different things used in the book of Daniel and other books too, that if you haven't read and understand those, it also makes an added challenge to go back through Revelation. So we've got to take all that into account when we look at it and we're going to study the book and take responsibility on ourselves for a number of reasons. Why are we digging in and what are we, why are we studying? I'm not taking away. I think it's a fantastic book to study, so don't, don't hear me wrong there. But what is the purpose on our heart? And then are we going into it for that to learn? Are we going into that to grow? And are we understanding the meat behind it? Like literally, if I want to use the gym analogy, because a lot of us there, if I walked in the gym cold and have never touched anything, and I looked at Andrew and said, all right, I'm going to start doing snatches. Andrew's going to look at me hard and go, no, no, you're not. I'm going to teach you steps to get to that movement. We're going to grow into that. Same thing goes with the Bible in a book like this, on a book like Revelation. We need to get through Genesis. We need to read the book of Daniel. We need to read Ezekiel and Isaiah and the other prophets. We need to read through the New Testament, have a solid foundation to build on to what the book of Revelation is saying. Yeah. And, and some people ask the question, is it symbolic? Is it literal? Uh, another thing to understand is if you've got a guy writing a book in, what, 70 A.D., right? 80 A.D., whenever it was um, John was writing this, maybe 90 A.D. So, so we're talking about a long time ago. And, and he gets a vision from God about something in the future. What do you think he thinks he's seeing? Right? Like, I think about this all the time. I was sitting in my office the other day, and I'm just looking at the computer screen, not even on, just the computer screen. And I thought, even if I were to grab somebody from 1945 and say, hey, look at this. What do you think that is? They would have no clue what it is. Right? There's a, a black square. You know, like, what do you do with that black square? You know? And then I turn it on, and people are talking, and there's video on. They would be blown away. You take somebody from the 1800s, and they're like, how did you get that man inside that black square? You know? And they're looking behind it, and they're like, how did he fit in there? How did that work? And, and so you've got to understand, too, that some stuff that we feel is literal, we also have an understanding that John is writing from his perspective. So when John sees something futuristic, he's going, well, it's, 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 a, it's a horse, but it's got a snake tail on it. You know what I mean? It's like, what was he seeing? I have no idea what he was seeing. And who knows? One day, maybe we're going to see a horse with a snake tail. I don't know. But I'm just saying you got to understand that, too. you got to understand that, too. Um, the next question that we have, and we need, to, we need to get to these next couple. We've got three more. Um, and I'm going to let these guys answer this one. If God is all-powerful... Why doesn't he just kill Satan to start with? Like, why do we even need the book of Revelation, right? Can't he just kill Satan now and get it over with? And then we don't have to worry about it, right? Wouldn't that be a good solution? So why is it that God doesn't just kill Satan? You guys answer this one. I'll start on that one. So this is, I've got to ask this question a lot and then and to take the question a little bit broader. Why does God allow evil to exist? Why, you know, there's rape, there's murder, there's all these horrible things happening in the world today. All you got to do is just turn on the news, give yourself five minutes. Why does God allow any of this to exist? And so I think you got to back up number one when we talk about the devil. Understand God did not create the devil. God created Lucifer the angel. So he started out as one of three named angels in the Bible. Most scholars think he was the worship leader of heaven. Literally, if you read the book of Ezekiel, it talks about Lucifer, his body being adorned with jewels, and his body was literally made of things of instruments, functionally made to worship, functionally done that. For a sidebar, just this has nothing to do with answering this question, but a sidebar, this always challenges me because I think of how I use my talents naturally. What I'm gifted in, I'm going to naturally lean on that. So if you think of today's day and age, and the devil himself was the original worship leader and made of music, he's going to lean on his talents today to try to tempt us and challenge us and push us. So think about what you're listening to on the radio. Think about what's going into your head. That's, that's the devil's natural tool that he uses. So just from a challenge to, especially to our young people in the room to think about that. 
But going back to the question, so let's just, let's just kind of take it back to the beginning. So in my opinion, God has really four choices that he can do with creation. Number one, he can not create at all. He just, nothing. He can just continue being God, chilling out, being God, no creation. We know that didn't occur because we're currently here. So mm. that kind of nixes that one. Second one, he can really create an immoral, an immoral world where there's no good or evil. You're just being. You're just there. There's no good. There's no evil. There's no nothing. You're just hanging out and doing Thirdly, he can create a world where only, only good can happen. He can stop evil. Basically, if evil's coming in, bad choices are coming in, something along that's about to happen, he can actually stop that. And lastly, we have the fourth where we have what we have now, good and evil both exist. So the problem with those, that second and third choice is this. If God does not allow evil to exist as a choice, understand, God did not create evil. God did not make the devil the devil. The devil chose to become the devil. The Bible says that he chose pride. He wanted to be like God, and he made that choice. So it's not that God's creating evil. It's that God's allowing choice. And he has to allow that choice to exist because what does the Bible tell us? 1 John 4 says that God is love. Simply put, God is love. And if you take choice out of the equation, then love can no longer exist. So if choice is gone, and we go to that amoral world where there's no good or evil, choice is pulled out, then there's no love either because I don't have the choice. If I don't have the option to, 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 to hurt Michelle, then I also don't have the option to love Michelle. I can't just do that. I become a robot and I'm floating through. So God is love and he cannot create something he is not. So when we think about why does evil exist and whatnot, understand that God cannot functionally create something that is outside of who he is. He cannot create something that doesn't have love as an option. So to do so, he has to give us choice. He has to give us the ability, and painfully speaking, he has to give us the ability to not choose him, to literally choose evil, to choose to, to, to follow our own desires, to choose to go after whatever we want, just like the devil did, and to follow pride. And one other comment on the devil, too, we get caught up a lot of times in thinking this is a fair, and Gabriel talked about this a minute ago, we like to think the devil versus God is like a fair boxing match, and it's like two guys in the same weight class kind of going at each other. Please, please, let me, let me dispel that move myth, excuse me, really quick. It's like Godzilla versus an ant. It's like Mike Tyson in his prime trying to box one of the kids back in kids' church. It's not even a game, guys. It's a joke. It's a laugh. It's not even there. The war in heaven wasn't a war in heaven. It was like, I'm going to raise up against God. Poof, it was over. So there's not like this big challenge, all that. And also understand that the devil was not created as God. He was created as an angel, so he doesn't have the same strengths and gifts. The devil's not omnipresent. God is omnipresent. He's here with us right now. He's hanging out in China at the same time. The Holy Spirit's everywhere at the same time. The devil can't do that. So I want to challenge us, too, when we think about these challenges and about evil, that oftentimes we give the devil far more credit than he deserves. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give him anything else than he deserves. And we, well, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. You made you do it. You know, well, well, the devil just tempted me. No, that's actually, I, I will go as far to say this. The devil's not our one enemy, number one enemy. If you want to look at your number one enemy, go get a mirror. Because it's the sinful nature that is within us. It is that ability to choose and that sinful nature. Go read Romans 7. The end of Romans 7, Paul devotes the entire back end of the uh, book of Romans, or the, excuse me, the chapter of Romans 7, to saying, I keep wanting to do good, and I can't. I keep trying to do right, and I can't. I keep wanting to be better, and I can't. And you can hear the frustration in his writing because he's literally talking about the war within himself, the sinful nature in there, and the challenge. At no point in there does he actually say the devil. At no point in Romans 7 does he say Satan. He literally is talking about the war within. So when we talk about evil, when we talk about why does God not just, you know, kill the devil? Why does he just stop it? He has to allow the temptation to be there. He has to allow the choice. The devil chose to go from being angelic to who he is. Just like we choose when we walk out this door to walk in, walk in faith and follow God, or we choose to do whatever we want. We have that choice. And without it, there's no love. Hey, I, I just got this thought. So in the beginning, Adam and Eve... Right before Satan shows up, God has already given them the option of obedience or not obedience. Yeah. Disobedience, I guess, is the right word. Think about it. God says, "Don't you can eat every tree you want. Don't eat this one tree." From the very no, there's no Satan there. There's no serpent. There's no nobody there. It's just Adam and Eve. God says, "Don't eat of this tree." So from the very beginning, God gives us choice to obey or disobey. Satan didn't make Eve eat the fruit. He didn't put it in her mouth. He didn't move her mouth up and down. Right? What did he do? He already 
already understood there's a choice to be made. Disobedience, God from the beginning said you can choose to obey or disobey. I'm giving you that choice. All Satan did was try to influence in one direction. So I never thought about that before until just now. So, what so Proverbs 19.3 says people ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then they're angry with the Lord. I mean, we, we, might, we might want to process that one. Because we do a lot of stuff and then we get mad at God. And even on these questions, and I get it and I'm glad we can answer questions. But anytime you say, if God, you're already asking the wrong question. You've got to respect him that he is God. It's not if God. If God had the power. Uh, I read the Bible grammatically, literally. In other words, I read it as a literal what it says. Uh, but I understand there are symbols. Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is the what to the sheepfold? He's the shepherd. He's oh, a shepherd, door. but he's door. He's the door or the gate to the sheepfold and calls us sheep. Well, I know I'm not a sheep. I know he's not a door. But grammatically, literally, I can put him in his place and say they're talking about Jesus and talking about me. Does that make sense to mm-hmm. you? So here's the deal with the devil, and this is my opinion on it. Uh, I believe exactly what these guys have said. That is that the devil was created as Lucifer. He was created with a choice because without a choice, you can't love. You can't serve without that choice. So everybody's given that, including us. He had that, but he failed. He chose not to serve God. He did it somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, and we don't know exactly where it was in there. And how do you know that? Because the Bible said when he did the creation, he created everything what? Good. So it was, he was created good, and he took his fall. Now, the other issue that I deal with on him and, and, and him taking his fall, he had an opportunity to have done well and do good, but he didn't do it. He, he made the choice uh, on his fall somewhere between those uh, first three chapters. But God, before the creation, according to Scripture, the Bible says before the foundations of the earth, Jesus was slain. In other words, in the mind of God, in the heart of God, in the creative power of God, he already had salvation planned before the devil ever took his fall. So that ought to make you feel good that God is in control. And there was no if with him. He made preparation for our redemption before he created anything else. That's good. I'm done. Just, the, the last, just to add on that, I'm sorry, that was too good not no, to. It's, it's like sometimes we think God's making this up as he goes. You know, like he's, you know, he yeah. gets, he gets down the line a little bit. And he's like, ah, we need to tweak that a little bit. You know, it's like me doing a project at the house. I'm not very crafty and me trying to do it. And then all of a sudden I figure out, mm, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have done that. Should have, should have used screws and not nails. And, 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 and I'm making, it's not, God doesn't operate like that. I mean, he's God and we need to, although we can't wrap our head around it, we also need to kind of understand it and have faith in it that like, like God had a plan to give us choice knowing that sin would occur and already had a plan to redeem that sin. That's right. That is incredible. Yeah. That right. is something everybody ought to go home and click their heels about. That's exciting stuff. The, the next question, second to last question, why would God give us hell as an option? So when I first read that question, I started laughing. I was like, hell as an option? Like, I choose hell. I choose hell, yeah. I want, to, I want that one. Let me get option B. You know, it's, it's almost like you're playing. Uh, I was at the doctor's office the other day, and they had that game show on. Um, what is the one, let's make a deal? You know, it's like, do you want box number one or door number two? You know, it's like, I won't, I'll take hell uh, for 5000 Alex, or whatever. So, um, but then I got to thinking about it, and I thought, you know what? Hell really is an option. Hell really is an option. Now, some people, some people don't believe in hell, right? If you were Jehovah's Witness, you don't believe in hell at all, right? Um, we believe in hell. We believe because Jesus talks about it. Um, the Old Testament talks about it. New Testament talks about it. I believe it. Um, but here's the thing the Bible, Jesus says about hell. First of all, that you need to understand right off the bat. Matthew 25, 41. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire. This is talking about hell. Prepared for who? The devil and his demons. In other words, you need to understand, God is not sitting in heaven waiting on you to screw up to throw you into hell. It's not his ultimate goal for all of us to burn in hell. He created hell for a reason for the devil and his demons. So then why is hell an option? Hell is an option. We choose hell. He doesn't send us to hell, right? We choose hell because we choose not to believe in his son. 
we choose not to, as John 3.16 says, go on believing, go on having faith, continuing, enduring. Jesus says multiple times in the scriptures, he that endures to the end shall be saved. In other words, it's not just a one time I believe, I prayed a prayer when I was seven years old. It is a lifestyle, a lifetime of serving God. God's looking for people that are going to endure, that are going to follow him forever. Those people go to heaven if you choose to disobey Christ. Then he doesn't send you to hell, you choose hell. Does that make sense? So when I talk to my kids sometimes, I say, listen, you're on a path of disobedience. Now you think I don't talk to my kids like that. I literally use these words. You are choosing to get a spanking. And my kids would say, especially when they're younger, I don't want a spanking. I say, oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do want a spanking. And this is the dumbest choice you can make. And they'll say, I don't want a spanking. I'm not choosing it. I said, your disobedience is telling me that you desire a spanking. The fact that you continue to lie to me, you are telling me, Dad, please hit me with that spoon. Right? That's the choice that they're making. When they disobey and they get the consequence of their disobedience, is it because I want to spank my children? Absolutely not. I love my children. I don't want my children to cry. I don't want my children upset. But they make a choice by their actions, even though I've given them options. I've told them you can obey or you can disobey. Disobedience leads to punishment. And we don't like that. We don't want that. We want everything to be all hunky-dory. But at the end of the day, we choose hell, not the other way around. Joshua 24 says, uh, choose you this day who you're going to serve, right? He, he says you can serve idols if you want to. You can serve God if you want to. You make the choice. I'm not choosing for you. We choose it. Okay. Y'all want to add anything to hell? Oh, no good. Okay, you don't want to go to hell. All right, we're going to close out now. So Matthew 22, if you've got your Bibles today, turn to Matthew 22. This is where we're going to end. So I, I got all this stuff done. We were ready to be done with this series. All the notes were complete. And then I get one more email, right? And I thought, well, this last email, I'm just going to, I'll just throw this question out there. I'll just answer it real quick and get it over with. Or maybe I'll answer it on another day. Or maybe I'll just email this person back and give them an answer. And then I realize that this actually fits in with all of this end times kind of stuff we're talking about. So the question is this. In Matthew twenty-two eleven and 12, what is Jesus referring to when he says wedding clothes? When he says wedding clothes. Now that doesn't make any sense unless you read the scripture, right? So the scripture is this. Matthew twenty-two eleven through 13. But when the king came in to meet the guests... He noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you're here without wearing wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. The king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When I read over this, I thought, man, they're, they're talking about hell, like Jesus is talking about end times, and we're talking about end times today. So this fits in perfectly, but the thing is, to answer the question, we need to see the whole context, right? We can't read just verses. we got to read the whole story to understand. So let's back up to verse 1, Matthew 22. Jesus also told them other parables, he said. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great feast for his son. Right off the bat, we see God, Jesus, right? Father, Son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. That's us, we're the servants, right? We're out to notify people that are invited, but they all refused to come. If you're highlighting or underlining, underline that. They refused to come. Verse 4, so he sent other servants to tell them, the feast has been prepared, the bulls and fatted cattle have been killed, and everything is ready, come to the banquet. So God is inviting people. He's inviting people to heaven. But the guests he had invited um, ignored them and went on their own way. This is important. One to his farm, another to his business. So he's trying to invite people, 
but people are ignoring the gospel. They're ignoring it. Some of them go to business. They go to their farm. They're, they're going to do the things that they want to do. Others, verse 6 says, seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. This is happening in other parts of the world right now. I feel like, I feel like you've got both of these things happening. You've got people that are ignoring the gospel. I'm too busy for that right now. I'm too busy to go to church. I'm too busy to, to be a Christian. I've got my business and, and I've got to get my business set. I've got this family I'm trying to start. I've got this relationship I'm in. I don't have time for your gospel. You've got other people Uh, You go to Iran, you go to the Middle East right now where Christians are being beheaded and their churches are being bombed and they're being burned alive. This is happening in other countries. You've got some people that are that are antagonistic. They're against the gospel. Verse seven, the king was furious and he sent on his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go. I love this. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, the good and the bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. So let me just pause for a second. So then he says, look, I don't care what they look like. I don't care what business they run. I'm not looking for the best of the best. I want anybody and everybody. Some versions say the highways and the byways. Like, you go out and get everybody. You go get the preacher and the prostitute, and you bring them in to the wedding. You go grab them on the street corner, or you grab them up in the business building. You get anybody you can get. Grab them all. Grab them all. Bring them all in. And so he fills up. He fills up the wedding hall with guests. Now we get to our question. The question was, what about the guy that wasn't wearing the right clothes? But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper wedding clothes for a wedding. Friend, he said, how is it that you're here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. The king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet, throw him out into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are some people who are indifferent to the gospel. They ignore it. They're too busy. Some people are antagonistic. They try to snuff it out. They try to kill it. Look at the media today. Look at any place in popular media that talks about a Christian. They never make the Christian look good. Christians are always bigots. They're always racist. They're they're always um, uh, hypocrites. They always make Christians look bad. Our world today is very antagonistic against the gospel. But then there's this third person... There's this third person. Now, Jesus may not have been referring to this, but there was a Greek custom, not a, not a Jewish custom. There's a Greek custom that if you showed up at a wedding banquet or showed up at a party and you didn't have the proper attire, maybe you just came from work and you weren't ready for the party, that the, that the host would have a closet with clothes that you could put on, like an outer robe, an outer garment that you could put on. Kind of like if you go to a nice restaurant and you don't have a coat, but they require you to wear a coat, they'll have a coat that you can put on, a jacket, a sports coat that you can put on. And this guy shows up at the party, but he's still wearing his old clothes. He never put on the right clothes for the party. Some people are indifferent. They ignore the gospel. Some people are antagonistic. And then there's a third class of people that are unchanged by the gospel. They show up to church every Sunday. They live in America, land of the free, home of the brave, right? They say some of the right things, but they're never changed. They're the same person they've always been. They've never allowed the gospel to get into their heart, to get into their life, to transform them. John the Baptist said, you need to show the fruit of repentance. James said, you can have all the faith you want, but if there's no change happening, if there's no works, there's no fruit coming from that change, then then you don't really have faith. 
I'm not saying we get to heaven based on works, but I am saying this. There should be a transformation happening inside of us whenever the gospel is preached, whenever we read his word, when the spirit of God speaks to us, there should be change happening inside of us. And if we're the same person we've always been, if we if all the only difference between me being a sinner and me being a saint is the fact that I prayed a prayer in a church. Maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I've accepted the invitation, but I wasn't willing to change the clothes. The Bible says that Jesus is put on like a garment. We wear him around every day. Why don't you stand up with me this morning? I want the gospel to change my life every day. Even as a pastor, I've been preaching the word of God since I was 15 years old. I'll turn 41 this year. That's a lot of years to be preaching the gospel. It's a lot of years to be preaching the gospel, but I'm going to tell you right now, every time I study it, every time I read it, I want it to change me. I'm looking for places in my life where I say something's got to be different. I can't stay the same. I'm willing to let the gospel, I'm willing to let the word of God be the, be the foundation of my life. Throughout this series, one of the things that's happened to me pers- on a personal level is, is that it's forced me to study areas and, and questions that, that maybe I thought I was solid on. But you know what? The more I studied and the more I understood it, it, it revealed some areas in my life where maybe I'd been living off the traditions of men and not off the word of God. So God's word has to change us. God's word has to change us. The gospel has to change us. Why don't you close your eyes with me this morning? Praying a prayer in a church, raising a hand, shaking a pastor's hand is not magic. It doesn't change your life. The Bible says that to be born again, we have to believe and go on believing. We have to endure to the end of the race, Paul says. So it's important to understand that belief isn't just a one-time thing. It's an everyday thing. It's a, it's a faithfulness. It's a fidelity that we have towards Christ and towards his word and towards his mission on this earth. And then the other thing the Bible says that to be born again means that we have to repent, that we have to turn away. We have to change our mind. We have to stop doing the things that God doesn't want us to do. We have to walk away away from sin. Does it mean that I never sin again? No, it doesn't mean that, but it means that I have freedom from that sin. I may be tempted. I may, I may still occasionally have a mess up or a slip up, but I'm very quick to repent and turn away. The Bible says that we ask God to forgive us and he does every time. These are two important aspects of being born again. The third important aspect of being born again is the Bible says that we receive the spirit of God to live in us and to live through us, to lead us and to guide us, to teach us the scriptures, to, to, to walk with us every single day. The Bible says that he is a comforter. The Bible says that he is a, a, a guide. The Bible says that he reminds us of the words of Christ. The Bible says he convicts us of sin and he convicts us towards righteousness, that the Holy Spirit is the one that helps us to walk according to God's word. Folks, I'm going to tell you if those three things aren't happening in your life, then we've got to make a change. So right now, I just want us to pray. And, and listen, we could do the whole sinner's prayer thing. We can do the Billy Graham, pray a prayer, come down to the altar. But I've seen too many times where, where it just doesn't matter. Like people pray the prayer and they leave and, and nothing's changed. I'm going to expect you to be a big boy, big girl today. I'm going to expect you to be an adult today. And listen, if God is moving on your heart, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart right now, if you're being convicted right now, if you feel inside of you, you can recognize some things that, God, I haven't changed this. God, I, I, I'm, still, I'm still stuck. I believe in you. I believe in you, but I haven't repented of my sins. I'm still wearing the wrong clothes. If that's you this morning, then I expect you to do the right thing today. I expect you to call out to God. I expect you to ask him to forgive you. I expect you today to reaffirm the fact that you believe in him, that you want to follow him. I expect you today to do what Peter said and receive the Holy Spirit into your life. So I'm going to pray the way I would pray. And I expect you just to pray. You pray on your own. 
And if you need my prayer to help guide you and direct you, so be it. Lord Jesus, today I come to you. Understanding that I'm not perfect. Understanding that I'm a, I'm a sinner. I understand that from the very beginning, Adam and Eve had a choice to, to decide to obey you or not obey you. And, and God, there's so many times in my life I've made the wrong choice in that, in that area. So many times in my life I've, I've chosen to, to trust in myself. I've chosen to trust in my own ability. And, and God, I've chosen pride and selfishness over submission and humility. And today I want to submit. Today I want to humble myself. The Bible says that, that if I humble myself, that you will lift me up. And so today I humble myself before you. And I just let you know today that I need to repent. That there are areas in my life where I've heard the gospel and I've ignored it. I've heard the gospel and I haven't been changed. And so God, today I just ask that you would forgive me. I believe in you. I repent. I turn away from my sin. And I want to receive your spirit to lead me, to guide me, to empower me. God, I ask for your spirit to convict me, to show me what's right and what's wrong. David said, search me, O God. And if there's anything in me that offends you, clean it out. So God, I come to you today, humble, knowing that I need a savior, knowing that I can't save myself knowing that all my good works mean nothing to you. God, only knowing that that the fact that I'm following Christ, I believe in Christ and His sacrifice for me, that's what makes the difference in my life. And then help me to show fruit of my repentance, God. As I repent, God, help me to love people. Help me to be patient with people. God, help me today to be full of joy. God, help me today to be passionate about Your Word and passionate about growing in You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.